0: And uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 10 for our scripture reading today. It will be verses uh, 22 through 30. John chapter 10. So we're going to continue our series in, uh, in John's gospel. We took a little bit of a break. Um, uh, I had, uh, was gone last weekend for a wedding in Virginia for my niece's wedding, and so we missed all of you. We were driving all the way, uh, like 10 hours, 11 hours, 12 hours, 20 hours. It felt like 20 hours. Um, and uh, Janet, was as we were driving back, she was like, make sure when you stop at the stop places for gas that you get out and run around. Because I don't want you to get blood clots, and I was like, "How dangerous is this trip, driving?" <laughs> um, and so, uh, so, anyways, it was a long drive, and uh, it was a fantastic wedding, and then so. But it's great to be back. I heard Martine brought the word last week, and so very grateful for that. And um, and then he's going to be back in a couple of weeks, and then Dave Voberg is actually preaching next week. Dave's here. <laughs> So Dave will be bringing the word next week, and then Martine will come back again, and then, and then Dave will be, uh, be preaching again. And so uh, uh, really grateful for that. Um, and with that, let's look to our scripture passage today in John chapter 10, verses 22. Verse 22. So we're picking up where we, we left off a couple of weeks ago. And our, we will read today, we'll read down to verse 30. And so let's, um, in in honor of God's word, let's stand together as we read. As I read and you follow along uh, while I read. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for these few short verses that are packed in here so much for us to meditate on and to reflect on. Uh, And to um, apply to our lives. So God here in these next few moments as uh, we examine your word we pray that you would speak to us, um, that you would soften our hearts so that we would receive the seed of your word that we would hear and understand and that our faith in your son Jesus Christ would be would be deepened. We ask that you would do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that you give, that indwells those um, who truly trust in you. We pray this in, in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. You may have your seats. So a couple of weeks ago, we were in John, we started John chapter 10. We looked at verses 1 through 21. And then Jesus has introduced us to this this metaphor of shepherd and sheep. Sheep being his people, his flock, the people of God, and that he himself is the shepherd. He's not just the shepherd, he's a good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And as we saw in Hebrews 13, he's not only the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd through his resurrection from the dead. And so... Here, what we see now in verse 22 uh, is taking place uh, a little bit later on from the events that we saw in John chapters 07, um, seven through. If you look back there, um, back to the beginning of verse seven, uh, chapter seven, verse two, it was during the feast of Booths, and now we're introduced to a different feast at a different time. So this is a little bit uh, a little bit later where Jesus has another encounter with the religious leaders also in Jerusalem. Uh, And in these few short words, we we only are dealing with half of it today, but in these few short words, these few short sentences, we have a, a ton of information for us to reflect on. So notice what it says in verse 22. Here's the setting of these crucial verses that Jesus says, Uh, Notice at verse 22 at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, I had you look back in John chapter seven. And we talked about this many times that um, John chapter seven in verse two tells us about the feast of booths and all of that event from John chapter seven all the way through 10 and into verse 10 or into chapter 10 is all taking place around that that festival of booths, which we talked about was. Um, It was celebrated in the fall. The Jews would go out and build little huts or tabernacles, um, booths to to stay in for a week. But now we are introduced, and that's one of the three festivals that Jews were required to go to Jerusalem for every year that are prescribed in the Old Testament, prescribed in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. But verse 22, it gives us another time marker, and this says it's the Feast of Dedication. Now, this is it's a Jewish festival. It's a Jewish feast, but it's actually not in the Old Testament. If you were to go and try to find where does the Old Testament describe the Jewish feast of dedication, it's not in the Old Testament. This is actually an intertestamental um, uh, holiday, Jewish holiday. Um, after Alexander the Great dies, his his empire is split in two. About what are we talking here About. 300, 200 and 300 uh, B.C. Um, after Alexander the Great's empire, he dies, his empire is basically split into half, east and versus west. And east and west, they kind of uh, would always occasionally have fights, fighting over a piece of property um, called the Holy Land, where Jerusalem is. And at one point in this struggle over property between the east and west kingdoms the eastern kingdom which is called the seleucid kingdom think syria think think the syrian kingdom there was a greek leader named antiochus the fourth and he ends up coming down conquering jerusalem um fighting off the the western side of uh, of alexander's empire he conquers jerusalem but this is what he does This is about 160-something B.C. Uh, He bans all of the Jewish rites in the temple, the daily sacrifices that the Jews would have to uh, participate in. He stopped all of them. And then he, at one point, uh, sets up an altar to Zeus, the god Zeus, and he sets it up in the Jewish temple, and then on one occasion, and I think it tells us on the month of Kislev, which is in December, roughly our December, 167 B.C., he offers a pig to Zeus on that altar. Okay, now, why, why is that? Well, first of all, you can imagine why offensive, how offensive that would be to Jews to take what would be an unclean animal and offer that blood in the, the temple Um, This was enraged the Jews. And this is actually uh, spoken of in the Old Testament in Daniel when he speaks a couple of occasions about the. And when you see the abomination that causes desolation, they believe that that's what this is referring to in looking forward at that event. So the Jews were enraged by this and they revolted under this under a family of the Maccabees and they they fought uh, Antiochus's troops out they reclaimed the temple and they rededicated the temple for for jewish use and so this feast of dedication um, is called hanukkah you guys know familiar with hanukkah right the festival of lights so this is the festival or feast that jesus is at and the new testament mentions it it's not an old testament uh, jewish passage Um, so jesus is here and Uh, John tells us that it is winter um, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade during this feast of dedication. So what what do we at least know? We know that this is at least two months or three months after this, after the events of chapter seven, eight, nine and the beginning of 10. So they're kind of revisiting this issue with Jesus. And notice what they do. They come up to him in verse 24. Now, here's the challenge. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. OK, so there they would on as we've seen all throughout John's gospel, there's a questioning of the Jewish authorities, silencing Jesus, kicking people out of the synagogue If they were to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and now they're coming to him and they say, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Tell us plainly right now. And notice Jesus' answer in verse 25 and 26. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. So here Jesus answers their question. He tells them, one, uh, I did tell you. And now that might kind of pause as you're reading that and say, oh, wait, you did say that Jesus, you did say that you were the Messiah, that you were the Christ. How did you do that? Perhaps he's referencing, if you turn back with me, John chapter 8, the very end of John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus is in that long debate with the Jewish leaders, and he has some, you know, not so kind words to say about them, and he goes, I know my father, and uh, you uh, are not, uh, you're not part of my father, you're part of your father, the devil, and then at the end of that, he says, he makes mention about Abraham. And Abraham, you guys claim that you are children of Abraham. Well, let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham saw my day. He saw my coming. And he was, he was glad about it. To which they say, you're not even 50 years old. And you claim to see Abraham. This just feeds their, their understanding that they think that Jesus is insane. And Jesus says this. Be, uh, Jesus said to them, verse 58... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember, we, talk, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That's the, the word, clearly a reference to him being Yahweh of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, where Moses sees the burning bush, and he's like, okay, you want me to go to Pharaoh, and you want me to tell Pharaoh to liberate God's people? Who should I say sent me? And the Lord God says, I am who I am. Tell him, I am sent you. It's where we get the word Lord in all capitals there. And so this is on one of many occasions where Jesus is using this I am for himself. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I will be. He says before Abraham was, I am. And they know what he was saying there because notice what it says in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So it's perhaps that, and it could be the other half of that. It could be all of his other works that he's been doing. Many times John talks about the miraculous things that Jesus does as being signs of him as Messiah. So Jesus says both. He says, one, I told you probably referencing 858. And then he says, and not only did I tell you that my works testify to it. And in both cases, you just refuse to believe. And then he, he adds this little statement at the end of verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So now Jesus is returning back to that metaphor. We saw at the beginning of chapter 10, Returning to the metaphor that he was using with them two to three months ago at the Feast of Booths, he's now bringing this up again. And again, note the order is very important here. It's not, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says to them, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. quite the indictment there. So now let's look at a couple of things that Jesus says about what the sheep do and what he does for the sheep. If Jesus is the good shepherd, there are some things that his sheep do, and there are some things that he does for the sheep. And so here's the first one. What does Jesus do for the sheep in verse 27? Well, Sheep here, referring to his genuine followers, those who have genuine faith in Christ. It says genuine followers, his sheep, hear and obey his voice. Notice at the very beginning of verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Now, uh, it's interesting he uses the word hear. In uh, the Old Testament, the word for hear and the word for obey is the same Hebrew word. It's a similar concept um, that's used kind of interchangeably. It could be referring to the actual uh, having audio sound waves penetrate into the eardrum and produce the, s- the signals to your brain to hear something. But in kind of the more um, uh, Jewish way of thinking, to hear something uh, was to obey and follow it. If you, if you didn't obey, you, you apparently didn't hear. It's not not a difficult concept for maybe a lot of parents, (laughs) right? Because how many of us automatically associate you give an instruction to your child, they don't do it, they they must not have heard me. So then you say it louder, you know, right? The association between hearing and doing. And so if you hear the word of God, you are to do the word of God. So Jesus says here, my sheep hear my voice. So they will hear me and they will obey me and follow me. Now, Jesus' voice comes in a couple of different ways. One, it comes in its initial, initially coming to to a lost person, and they hear what we call the gospel call. They hear the gospel. And that by the Spirit of God, that's made effectual in the life of that person. That's the the first time you hear the the word or the voice of, of Jesus speak. Have you heard that? But there's also an ongoing hearing of the voice of Jesus. Jesus speaking to us today, daily, and that is through his word and through his spirit. So to those of us who are Christians, are you listening and hearing the voice of Jesus? And consequently, are you obeying? Are you hearing and doing? Don't want to be a hearer only, but also a doer. So Jesus' genuine followers hear his voice and obey what he calls us to do. But there's a second one, Jesus says in the rest of verse 27, and I know them. And I know them. Genuine followers are known by Jesus. Not only do they, they know Jesus and want to know Jesus and to know him more. But you have this incredible uh, statement by Jesus that he knows them intimately, personally. Personally. I often think of um, a quote uh, from a man named Carl Truman, who, who talks about uh, churches and church leadership, uh, and this is more applicable to to really large churches, like mega churches. Um, and it's I, I, I always come back to this statement. And I think it's very fascinating. Um, because he, he would understand the, the nature and the relationship of, of a pastor and his congregation. And how important it is for the pastor to, not only for the sheep to know the pastor, but for the pastor to know all of the sheep. And Carl Truman says this uh, said this one time, if your, uh, if your pastor doesn't actually know you actually exist, he isn't actually your pastor. Okay. right. Um, And I, I, I come back to that quite often, especially with my church background. I came to from, you know, from large church backgrounds. And one of the biggest challenges was how to get the the pastoral staff to know all of the people in the church. And it was a constant fight because it was just impossible. They had lots of people who came to the church were just kind of anonymous and they would know the pastor, but the pastor wouldn't know them. Think about this. Jesus, we don't just know Jesus. Jesus knows you. If you're a genuine sheep of his, he knows you. He knows everything about you. Not generally, specifically. Even to the, the hairs on your head or the lack of them. He knows them. As a matter of fact, he doesn't, know the, he doesn't know the quantity. He has them numbered, Jesus says. So he knows his people. What assurance is that for you to know that Jesus knows everything? Now, some of you might panic and go, wait, he knows everything? (laughs) Yes, he knows everything. Meaning even the deepest, darkest? Yes, he knows that. And he forgives me and loves me anyways? Yes, he knows that. He knows. So Jesus says, "My, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And one of the worst things that can ever happen to anybody, the worst thing you could probably ever hear, is that Jesus saying, I don't know you. Or I've never known you. Wait a second, Jesus knows everything. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus relays In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So worst thing imaginable to hear is that I never, when Jesus says, I never knew you. But to his genuine followers, to his sheep that he knows, he knows them by name. He calls them out, as he said a couple of months ago in the previous chapter. Notice and remember John chapter 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Couple of other passages that reinforce this idea. First Corinthians chapter eight, the apostle Paul says, "But if anyone loves God, he is known by God." Seems like kind of like well, yeah, of course, right? Um, but Paul is making this statement: you you are known by the Creator of the universe. And, and to the church of Galatia, he says, but now that you have come to know God, and it's almost like he corrects himself, or, goes, or rather, to be known by God. And then he says, don't, how can you turn back to, again, worldly principles? I love that. You have come to know God. Rather, you, you, uh, you have not just come to know God. You are known by God. Or lastly, this one in 2 Timothy. But God's firm foundation stands Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. How reassuring is that to you today? To know that the Lord, if you indeed are the Lord's, he knows you. And he knows you are his. And here's the third one. Jesus' genuine followers are sheep. Who follow him. Genuine followers follow me. And they follow me, he says. Now, what does it mean to be a follower or a Jesus follower? A lot of people will put that in their description of their social media bios and those sorts of things. Um, and I know that there's many people who take this to mean, well, I'm following Jesus' teaching. Um, and in some cases, when you I've seen this, this. Phrase used, I'm a Jesus follower, it, it is usually, so, on occasion, it's limited to, I follow some of his general ethical, moral teachings. And it usually boils down to a, a couple of things. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's good. But for them, that's kind of the sum total of being a Jesus follower. Or, uh, or this one, do not judge. <laughs> that's it. You know, like... I'm a Jesus follower, and I just I'm going to refuse to judge anyone because Jesus said, Do not judge. Will he say anything else? You push a little farther. Th- there's not much more depth than that. Um, of course, it always includes following Jesus' moral teaching and his ethical teaching, of course. Right? You hear his voice, he said. But it's not limited to that, it's not just limited to a couple of principles for living. Um, If you do a survey of following Jesus in the gospel, you realize it involves some, some very serious things. It's a call to follow. It's a call to be a learner or a disciple. Again, continuing on this idea of hearing and obeying. So it's a call to follow. It's a call to surrender. To give up something. To be a Christian, becoming a Christian has to cost you something. It has to. Jesus says this in in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And a little later after this, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be a follower of Jesus, it has to cost you something. And woe to see so much in the the church today of people who claim I'm a follower of Jesus and then it didn't cost you anything. Or uh, to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then when it does cost you something, like your reputation in, uh, among the, uh, an unbelieving world, that you would be willing to let go of those sorts of things and to distance yourself from those and say, well, I'm not that religious, or no, I'm not this kind of thing. No, it has to cost you something. So it's a call to follow, it's a call to surrender, and then it's also a call to suffer. Acts 14 says this, um, and it's just this statement at the end of Paul's journeys as he's traveling to the churches that he had planted, and he's going and revisiting all of these churches. And he says to them, it, it, it says, Luke, describing what they're doing, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. To be a must- you must, it's through tribulations that you get to the kingdom of God. As you're following Jesus, he leads you through tribulations. May it never get into our minds that it's going to be an easy journey into the kingdom. If we're following the one who was Crucified. So this following, me, this becomes one commentator says, this, this whole dis- description of following is, is a metaphor for salvation. And so in all of this is a call for the, the saints, the true sheep, to, to persevere in their faith. But the perseverance of the saints also comes because of the preservation by God, which is what Jesus does for his sheep. We just looked at what the sheep do. Now let's look at what Jesus does for his sheep, verses 28 and 29. And there's basically two points here. Jesus gives his sheep life eternally. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Perish here is not just, it's not that they won't die physically, it's that they will not perish in the final judgment. That we will be raised to life, and he freely gives this as a gift to all who would trust in him. So Jesus gives them eternal life. This is what Jesus does for his sheep. And then notice this, Jesus provides them, or his sheep, or you, if you are a sheep, A strong security. Notice what he says here in the rest of verse 28. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Wow. His sheep are secure in the nail-pierced hands of the resurrected Jesus. And not only is it in Jesus's nail-pierced but yet resurrected hands that His sheep are held tightly and guarded and secured and not snatched. This would be like uh, the term for you know robbers who would uh, go and you know take over a, a city or and take all of the gold and steal and break in. He says no one is able to do that. I, there is such a strong and sure defense of this person being my sheep, that they will never, ever be lost. No one can snatch them out of my hand. But it's not just Jesus' hand. Notice what he says in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Think about that. His sheep, those who are secure in Jesus' hands, first of all, they're a gift. Notice that word there, who has given them to me. We're going to get to this a little bit later on in John's gospel, John chapter 17. We're going to look at this in greater depth. That the Father and the Son both eternally existent, and in Jesus' prayer, he speaks about um, the returning to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And in that context, he talks about doing the work that you called me to do and receiving the gift that they had planned and arranged beforehand to give him a people. We'll unpack that in a great deal, but now you're, you're, the wheel's probably wondering, wait a second here. Jesus is talking about a, a an arrangement between God the Father and God the Son that predates the creation, that predates Genesis 1, 1, that the Father and the Son are working together and the Father promises, I'm going to give you this people. We'll get to that in a little bit when we get down to that. But but that's what should be going through your mind when Jesus says these words, the Father's given these people to me. These sheep, they're mine. I didn't just obtain them here and there. The Father gave them to me. Again, adding to this idea of this security, it's just amazing. And it's not only are you, if you're his sheep, you are in Jesus's hand. You're in the Father's hand. I didn't write this down. I believe it was um, Spurgeon that talked about this as a a two-handed security, double-fisted protection of God's people. You're not just in Jesus' hand, you're in the Father's hand. It's like Jesus' hand and the Father's hand, you're secure there. Which is quite a statement, especially if you think through how hand is used for the Lord God throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. Hand is a metaphor for his creation activity, right? Psalm 8, the works of your fingers, the works of your hands. Psalm 102, the heavens are the work of your hands. The hands or the arm also being a metaphor for God's redemption of his people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt, right? I took you by the hand and I led you out. Just to say, look at how securely I established the heavens and the earth. And look at how securely I led my people out of their bondage of slavery. And it's also for his for God's provision and protection of his people. Here's one sampling from Isaiah 41. Yahweh here speaking about his people. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many of you were singing the song, the hymn, as reading that? So notice this assurance that's right here in this passage. And I think that this is the imagery that Jesus is using when he's saying, And my sheep are in my hand, and not only they're in my hand, they're in the hands of the Father, whose hands created the heavens, the work of your fingers who led Israel out and here is saying, and that I will uphold you and protect you and sustain you with my righteous right hand. This double-fisted preservation of God. God is with us. I am with you. God has established a relationship with us. I am your God. It's covenantal. God gives us assurance of his strength and help and victory over sin and death. I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Double-fisted preservation of God. Isn't that amazing? So here you have in these verses one of the clearest and strongest passages in all of the Scripture that talks about the absolute, eternal security of every believer. The absolute eternal security of every genuine Christian. So what does this mean? I, I didn't plan on this. I didn't plan on this uh, today. So I just thought I'd wheel this over here. I would have made a slide for it. But if, let me kind of give a, give a little drawing here. Do you like drawing time, kids? You can draw, okay. It's me. Mia me raised her hand. Maybe I should have you draw this. because You're a better drawing there. So let's do kind of think of it like this, okay? Here's here's a grid. This was working. And then down here, we're gonna put confidence. Confidence or assurance um, or uh, belief, okay? That's down here. So we say it's kind of low over here and high over here. And then we're gonna put over here, salvation. salvation. And then we would, let's just do this in quite stark terms. No and yes. Okay? And so if we were to, to kind of give an example, let's go through them like one by one, one grid at a time. <clears throat> somebody who is not saved and has a low confidence of whether they're saved. Well, that's this would be somebody who would be like um, you know, is, is an unbeliever and they know they're an unbeliever. So, unbeliever, and they are assured in their confidence that they're an unbeliever. And it might be even that they know that they're an unbeliever and they don't care. Tragic. This is sad. But let me, let me go over to this side. Here's somebody, uh, and I, I think this is also a very bad scenario here. This is somebody who is not saved but they have a confidence that they are. Okay, They're, they're on the, the not-saved side of this equation, but they seem to have some sort of confidence that they are. Now, what what would that look like? Well, I would say this is probably somebody who is maybe self-righteous or somebody who thinks I'm basically a good person. And I think that if you were they were to say, like, you know what, if, if I were to come before God, I think generally he would know that I am, was a pretty good person compared to a lot of other people. Their confidence, are, are they saved? No, because they haven't really trusted in Christ. Their confidence is in their self-righteousness. Does this make sense here? This one's pretty bad. They're both bad, but this, this one's pretty bad. But what about this one over here? So in this this quadrant, you have somebody who is saved, but they do have a high degree of confidence that they are. That's not arrogant when you understand what salvation is, right? Salvation is, is, is not by works, lest anyone should boast. So here you have, I would say this is assurance, Assurance that you're you're saved by the gospel by Christ. Okay, and this is again nothing arrogant about this. This is recognizing that I do not have any works of my own that would attain any kind of sort of satisfa- satisfaction before God, and I trust purely on the merits of Christ, and they're given to me freely as a gift by. By trusting in him, I become his child, I become a part of his, his kingdom, and that this is his work, not mine. It's amazing, right? It's okay to be assured of that. The scriptures call us to that. Um, but there's another group that would be, um, that would be, they are in fact saved, um, But that they struggle with assurance. I'm not sure what else to to really call that. Um, But we would say, you know, say, doubting believer. They are believers in Jesus Christ, but they go through moments where they're doubting their assurance. Or they struggle with the idea, like, well, am I really really saved? I would say that the goal here is for, well, Listen, if we were break down the goal, the goal for an unbeliever is to repent of their sins and become a believer. That'd be great, right? And the goal for the self-righteous would be to repent of their self-righteousness and to actually really and truly trust in Christ. And I would say the goal for the doubting believer would be to understand your true assurance, your, your true security. Your assurance that you have in Christ. This is what. Uh, this is one of several passages in the in the scripture, and I would say it's one of the strongest passages in the scripture that speak about the absolute security of those who are true believers. And Jesus drives this home even further by what he says, uh, what he says in verse thirty. He just says, um, I know them. They follow me that I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So talk about this, this double fisted preservation. Jesus is saying here. That they are they are one. And this is an answer, right, to to verses 20, the the question that Jesus gets in verse 24. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? This is plain. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. That was pretty plain. You want me to make it even more plain? Uh, I and the Father are one. Now, well, some will object. Well, they asked him, did Jesus th- tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Now, I think that Jesus does not come specifically and say, use those words, because their understanding of the Messiah was a, a military leader who was going to overthrow Rome. And so it, Jesus is, is saying, yes, I'm answering your question. I'm not, I don't want you to be confused and think I'm the military leader, right? Because that's what they were, some of Jesus' followers were attempting to do. Let's take him by force and make him key, our king. And Jesus is answering their question, but he's answering it around this way. He says, I am, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I am the Father, we are one. That's not confusing the person's. Jesus is the the eternal Son of God, and the Father is the Father. But by using this language of one, he's echoing, I think, one of the the well-known Jewish creed, known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is reinforcing what Jesus had just said in. In, about being the I am, which is, which is interesting here. Notice the, the association. Remember, Jesus says, truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. And we read that the next thing that they did was they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid him and went out of the temple. Notice what they do here. Notice verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They didn't misunderstand either of those two times what he was doing. Jesus is equating himself with God. Let me read to you one commentator says, says this. And he's doing so in a way that, that Jesus is equating himself with God, but recognizing that there's distinct persons within the Trinity, but that they have a fundamental oneness. This number one um, is, without getting too much into the weeds, it's, it's not the, the normal masculine case It's being used here. It's in the neuter case, which is really weird because there's nothing neuter that it's referring to. And that was a way of kind of saying the whole thing uh, without getting into it. But that's what he's saying here and um, saying that the we are and the one this commentator says it expresses an identity, not of person, but of power, purpose and action and implies an identity of nature given the parity of status indicated by the parallelism of verse 28 and 29. This verse is Jesus' answer to the Jewish demand, tell us plainly, and expresses a functional oneness between Jesus and God and implies their ontological identity. Okay, fancy way of saying it. They are truly, really one. Father and Son are indistinguishable in purpose and nature, um, but distinguishable in person. Going back up there a little bit. There's, it expresses an identity, not of person, but of power, purpose, and action. Absolute unity in power, purpose, and action. The strength and security of Jesus' strong Nail pierced, resurrected hands is supplemented by the strength of God the Father. And what is, and and saying that they're united, absolutely united in power, purpose, and action. And what is that power, purpose, and action? In preventing the theft of his sheep. The power and purpose and action of the The persons of the triune Godhead is to keep his sheep. This goes along with what Jesus had said earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on that last day. Or in John chapter 17, in Jesus' great grand prayer to God the Father, he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. You want to know the possession of God's people, uh, of Jesus' people, if you were to make it as a circle, and the possession of all of God's chosen people, it's a, it's a circle. A Venn diagram, you would have put it together. It's just one circle. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Jesus continues to pray. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. This is referring to Judas. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, there's no stronger, perhaps no stronger passage in all of the Bible that speaks of the security of true, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. So I would say, uh, friends... Well, let, let's go through all of these. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then clearly the call for you is to repent. How's this going? How's it going running this race under your own power, being your a law unto yourself? You need to repent and come to Jesus Christ. Um, If you are self-righteous, you you think, actually, uh, I'm a pretty good person if you were to compare me to some other people throughout history. That does not work. Salvation is not based upon how good you do. On your merits, it's based on the merits of Christ. So I would say, likewise, you need to repent. And if this is you, and you are uh, strong in your faith, because of the work of Christ, and you recognize it's it's him and his alone, he's done this amazing work, and I trust him that who began a good work in me will carry it through to completion to the day of Jesus Christ, then amen, praise for that. But if you're a doubting believer who struggles with this assurance of, of salvation, Let me just encourage you with these words from Jesus. That if you are, through faith in him, his sheep, you have been given eternal life. You will never perish. No one will snatch you out of Jesus' hand. And the Father, who is greater, gave you to Jesus, and no one is able to snatch you Out of the Father's hand. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just praise you. When we zoom out and think of the wonderful work of your redemption from Genesis to Revelation... And how you are preserving a people for yourself. We just are in awe and amazement and wonder. At your grace. That you would choose even to save any. Is truly a demonstration of your love and grace and mercy. And that you would. Even so much as send your son into the world, according to a plan from before the foundation of the world, deciding to send your son to this world in human form and to suffer and die on a cross to save your people is truly amazing. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray for those who um, are your genuine believers but who struggle with knowing truly how secure we are in your hand. We pray, God, that you would use your word to show and to teach, to remind us that of the double-fisted preservation that you have on your people. And as we dwell on that, Father, that, we be, that so far from our mind would be to, to rest on our laurels, but rather that we would take that truth and spur us on, knowing that we are now liberated from that bondage to now serving you with freedom and with joy. So we pray that you would help us to do that. May this truth motivate us to continue to walk with you hand in hand because we know that we are preserved by that mighty hand. So we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit you put within us. And we pray that you would equip us to do all that is pleasing to you in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand for our closing benediction and what better one than to do the Hebrews 13. Brothers and sisters, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.